Happy holidays, Merry Mutts. I am Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And this is Cadaver Dogs. We are here with a very special guest on this very special holiday episode. Brecker Norse is back from Autopsy of a Horror Movie. Hi, Brecker. It's so good to have you back. Hello. Thank you for having me back on. It's always great to chat about movies with you two. Thank you. I feel the same. I <laughs> always love having you on. I love going on your show. I feel like we could make this a regular thing. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously our listeners know you from Autopsy of a Horror Movie. If you haven't listened to it, it's a horror podcast. Brecker, can you give our audience a little information about your show? Yeah, absolutely. So Autopsy of a Horror Movie, first off, can be found anywhere you find podcasts. Probably the same podcast player you're using right now for Cadaver Dogs. But similar to Cadaver Dogs, it is kind of like an analysis of the genre Uh, Me and my co-host Orlean, we will discuss a movie and break it down into several different segments. Uh, One of them getting into the types of fears that the movie is playing off of. And outside of that, we like to have fun with like random episodes like kill grades, special topics. We'll even occasionally do some like commentary tracks and TV, like horror TV shows too. So it's just kind of like a a fun study into the genre and different facets. So Autopsy Horror Movie can be found anywhere you listen to podcasts. I love the kill grades so much. <laughs> I just want to say that the, the kill grades bring me so much joy to see all these kills broken down. <laughs> Thanks. We definitely need to do more of them because uh, we haven't done one in a while. And I do hear that often that people like those. So, yeah, I should probably try to bring this back into the cycle more. <laughs> I think that's my favorite thing about your show is that you have so many different, it's a variety. It's a variety of ways to talk about a Mm. horror movie, Um, an an autopsy, which is so perfect. (laughs) Exactly. Right. (laughs) That's the joke. If people didn't get it. Yes. (laughs) Have you covered the autopsy of Jane Doe yet? It's on my list. I really want to do that one. <laughs> Just since it's autopsy of a horror movie, autopsy of Jane Doe. Seems right. like it fits. It yeah. definitely does. Yeah, that's a. it feels like an obvious one, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to try to do a Brian Cox impression, and then that was just going to go real south real quick. No, please. Uh, <laughs> I want to hear your Brian Cox impression. <laughs> no, I can't do it now. <laughs> well, we're definitely going to hear more about Brucker and what he's working on and more about the show. Um, in our mid-movie break. But for now, we're going to bring you into our holiday special episode. For this one, we have two movies that take place around Christmas time, I think is the way to introduce these movies. Right, David? Yeah. I think, are they both set on Christmas? I think. They both make it to Christmas Eve, for sure. Yes. (laughs) At least. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So, David, why don't you bring us into our first film today? The Harringtons are driving on a long and dark road on their way to Christmas dinner when they come upon a woman in white, bruised and bloodied and cradling a baby in her arm. The family brings her to find a phone and call for help. But as they do, Brad, who is planning to propose to the family's teen daughter, Marion, learns the baby is already dead. The woman disappears, and Brad is taken into an ominous black hearse where he's driven away screaming. By the time the rest of the family catches up, he's already dead, 
lying on the road in a bloody mess. With no cell signal and no other choice, the Harringtons continue on their way. It should be just a few minutes now, but it's not a few minutes, and the road doesn't seem to ever end. They fight and bicker, and secrets come out. For one, that Marion is pregnant. Frank, halfway through his bottle of booze, theorizes they may be on a military road, explaining why there are no churns or exits. His son Richard has a different theory. Aliens. That is, before Richard is discovered by the woman in white and claimed as the next victim. To this, Laura suffers a mental break, revealing Richard was not Frank's son, but the product of an affair she had with Frank's friend, Alan Rickson. Laura also eats a whole pie until she pukes, shoots Frank in the leg with a shotgun, and claims to see everyone who's ever died watching them from the woods, before she leaps from the car and joins them. Frank and Marion, father and daughter, are the last two remaining, and try to bond. But Frank caves to impulses, chasing the woman in white and punching his daughter unconscious when she protests. He is soon claimed as well. Alone now, Marion drives the car until it runs out of gas. The hearse returns, and she has nowhere to run, but it's not here for her. The woman in white climbs into the hearse, and it drives away as Marion awakens in a hospital bed. It seems Frank had driven the car headfirst into another, which carried a young woman and her baby. The man who found them and tried to rush them all to a hospital drove a black hearse. Was this all one shared dream as the family fought against their passing into oblivion? The cleanup crew uncovers a list of the things Frank planned to do upon escaping. One, buy an Atari. Two, be the coolest grandfather ever. This is Dead End, directed by Jean-Baptiste Andrea and Fabrice Canipa, starring Ray Wise and Lin Shay. Oh, that that ending note really got me. I also didn't realize <laughs> they were the Harringtons until the summary, and now I just keep picturing Harry and the Harringtons. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Oh, no, it's Henderson. It's Henderson. Well... <laughs> Well, there we go. <laughs> you know what? I'm still going to never saw that movie. <laughs> well, this it, it was particularly odd for me to see that last name, Harrington, because the neighborhood I lived in is called Harrington. Oh, so man. I was like, this is spooky. Mm. I don't like that. <laughs> but the name of the movie is Mr. Harrigan's Phone. <laughs> <laughs> I, we've had this discussion so many times and I still will fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, as we discussed, this movie takes place around Christmas, uh, and they make it to Christmas yes. Eve. It's Christmas Eve, I believe, right? The that makes sense because they're yeah they're driving at night. You you wouldn't be driving for Christmas in the middle of the night unless it's Christmas Eve. That's fair. Yeah, I, I think they say that too, and also at the end, Probably. the the workers talk about how like it's Christmas Day and they're having to clean up stuff. Ah, oh, uh, right. oh cool, cool. that's a special gift. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> So, but this film feels like it can kind of like, it can basically be any family trip anytime a family goes into a car. So do you think there was any reason why, or anything that the theme of Christmas adds to this film, why the filmmakers wanted to set it around this holiday? That's a tough question, honestly, because I've been trying to think about that myself. Besides, there's some like handy, like plot devices in this, with it being set around Christmas, like they're able to use some of the Christmas gifts they have in the back seats is you know, in the movie uh, like you know they bring out a shotgun at some point that they're gifting to somebody there's the whole boyfriend wanting to propose on christmas eve dinner and it's also like family centric it's family time and everything i don't know I, I was just getting so many different vibes but like i feel like this was also like very bi biblical too in certain senses and like that's why it was like cent centered around christmas but i'm still like reeling but like i can't pinpoint it i'm just like kind of finding all these different loose ends but uh, i'm curious to hear what David and you have to say, because I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> 
I hadn't thought about the biblical aspect, but I actually like that. I mean, you have both the baby in the woman white's baby, and you also have Marion is pregnant. So there is definitely that theme in there as well. Mm -hmm. And centering that around Christmas, obviously Christmas is about a baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the main thing to me is the theme of family that Christmas, generally speaking, is associated with like families getting together and getting along and being all happy. And, oh, my God, I love you guys. You're my family. We all love each other. And this movie is taking that and being like, well, but they suck, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, do these characters suck. Well, some of them. Some of them. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I agree. I think like they really wanted to explore the family dynamic and there is a sense of like this dysfunctionality or even the getting along with the family is heightened during the Christmas season. It builds attention by forcing them all together. So I agree. But yeah, I think all of the devices that they use in this film, like the presents, really give it a it helps the comedy too because there's this idea of going into a christmas movie that there's like usually some sort of joy going into it right we're all like mm. supposed to be happy around christmas um we're supposed to be watching these joyful films so there's always something fun about watching a really dark movie with that juxtaposition of no nah, this movie's not going to end well but it's also Christmas time and everyone's happy and it's Christmas day and let's open some presents and drink some eggnog. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that interesting thing about Christmas horror is that, you know, it is like playing off of everything you just said, Devin. It's like, you know, it's, it's that just, just a position. I just butchered that word of how it, it's supposed to be like this joyous, happy time. And then, but then you know, you're getting like these mix of tones of like something much darker underneath all of it. And it's, it kind of like helps build that like weird atmosphere that is trying to present and everything. Yeah. This movie definitely has a very strange atmosphere. Before we move on, I did want to hear more, Brucker, about your religious takeaways from this. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, do we have enough time? So, <laughs> I, of course we do. So, uh, there, there's, there's a few like loose threads, and I'm like still trying to like connect the dots with all of it. Like what David said, there's the obvious thing about the the pregnant woman, and we don't really even have confirmation on who the father is because, oh, like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, because I found it interesting that you know he's uh, Brad. I think was the boyfriend's name. Yeah. I think he's talking about how he wants to propose later that night, and then we cut to her rehearsing her breakup speech with him. And normally, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to like paint a broad stroke or anything, but I find it interesting that she knows she's pregnant but she still wants to break up with him. And that leads me to think maybe she knows about her mother's misgiving and Richard not only being her half brother and she doesn't want to raise a family based off of a lie and that like there is another man or she just doesn't want to marry for the wrong reasons. I feel like the movie left it ambiguous about like who the actual father is similar to Jesus and Joseph having to be the stand in a uh, physical father mm. in that story. But um, I was looking at or not looking, I was looking up because the road they're on, it says it's going to uh, Marcotte, uh, which we find out is the name of the doctor, but I was curious, you know, what does Marcotte have any other meaning? And it is an ancient Latin surname for Marcus, which means that people that bear that were followers of the Roman god Mars, the god of war, which I find interesting since they are carrying weapons <laughs> in the car going to Marcotte. But Marcotte or Marcus being a Roman god, Romans were the ones that did crucify Jesus. And this whole story is called Dead End. It's, they're on this road to their death, even the babies. And so 
that's kind of like what Christmas is. Like, yeah, it's the birth of Christ, but we all know that his purpose of being birthed is to die, is to be sacrificed. So I found all that like kind of interesting. I was like, I wonder like that's what this whole thing kind of is. And like the gas in the car is faith. You still need faith. And even when you run out of faith, you have to get out of the car and keep walking forward, not perpendicular to it because you just end up right back where you are. It's... Uh, so, so those, those were like the major things I was getting <laughs> with all the biblical stuff in this. That's cool. I love that. I had not considered that Brad wasn't the father, but I think what you're saying actually makes a lot of sense. I think what my thought had been was that maybe she had been considering aborting the child and didn't want it. And that was all influencing her decision to break up. Mm-hmm. But then as the movie goes on, she seems to be playing to keep it. So is that that she changed her mind through the events in the movie or what? But I think that your theory that Brad is not the father makes more sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's implied to me that she has wanted to break up with him before because she mentions that he had threatened to take his life if she did, which is oh. fucked up. <laughs> Yeah, no, that, that's another good point that I glossed over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's really dark that she feels kind of trapped. I mean, that was my takeaway from it, too, was like, I guess we don't really see her debating with breaking up with him. She's pretty much made the decision by the point that we we learn that she's considering, yeah. I guess not considering it the right word, but when she talks about it. Yeah. And I mean, like at the end, it is revealed that it was kind of it was all in her head question mark we'll talk about the ending uh in a little bit but if we do go into this looking at everything being in her head as this is her imagination i did kind of read it as this whole fantasy around the debate of continuing the family david like you were saying of like should i Mm. break up with him should i have this baby what will a family look like and really like looking at every single person in her family and her relationship with them and trying to figure out if she wants to continue it you know if she wants to create her own dysfunctional family based off of what she grew up with and i feel like that's what i'm sure everyone goes through when they're about to have a child is like let me look at my own past and my parents and see am i ready for this yeah and i think that whoever the father is it is clear that he's not in the picture because she does also talk to her father about how I can't raise this baby without you and whatnot. So it Mm. seems like she Mm. is going to need help that she is probably not getting help from whoever it is. Mm. That's another good point. Which is Brad because he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's not Brad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, but with this, could Richard also be a Jesus allegory? Richard? (laughs) Why? Because uh, <laughs> Lin Shay's mom, Lin Shay's mom, because Lin Shay, I mean, if the idea of of Marion, you know, having this child not with Brad and by somebody else who we don't know, I mean, the same can be said for Lin Shay with Richard. We don't, there's questions around who this guy was, right? But he definitely wasn't uh, uh, the dad of, you know, the, the patriarch of the family, Ray Wise. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> You know, no, that, that's another parallel to, like, you know, like different fathers and, and like stand in fathers, too, and, and everything that, that that's a good point, too. I <laughs> d- d- I guess Richard maybe abuses his power more than than, than, than what we think maybe Jesus. Did. I don't know. Maybe you also parallel it too with, you know, Jesus going into the desert for 40 days and tempted by the devil and then Brent, or Richard going out into the woods and he is tempted by the lady in white and he fails. Absolutely. <laughs> There's definitely that parallel. His name is Michael. That's what Alan wanted to call him. That's his real name. Another another 
another biblical name. Uh, that is a biblical <laughs> name. True. And then the daughter Marion is very close to Mary too. So oh. that's oh yeah. I think I was thinking of that as a psycho reference, but <laughs> oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, this is a highway horror film. Yeah, which I love, by the way. I love movies that like have like a single location, kind of like this, and I, it just makes it so much more entertaining to me for some reason. It feels very Twilight Zoney to me. There's that one episode of Twilight Zone called The Hitchhiker, which has a lot of beats in common with this. Well, one of my favorite episodes too. <laughs> <laughs> What I love about highway horror is that there are, yeah, the hitchhiker, there's repetitive myths that we bring up during the highway horror. And I feel like this movie brings all of them into one film, such as The Woman in White. And I did want to talk a little bit about her. You know, The Woman in White is a famous folklore myth that's international. It's all around the world. I mean, I think there's a woman in white in every single state in the United States. But through this, I also didn't know it's in France. It's in Germany. It is Dame Blanche. It is Weissfrauten. And then it's all over Europe, which is really cool. So can we talk a little bit about um, the woman in white folklore and how we think it works in this film? David, I know you did a little bit of research into the original folklore. Could you tell us what you found? Well, the original folklore is kind of a weird phrasing here because it's kind of, you know, like there's some of those tales that just recur in various cultures that were not influenced by each other in any way that we can tell. Like yeah. how every culture has a flooding myth. It seems like everyone has their own woman and white myth, and we don't really know why. And it's not like they're all based off each other. I mean, at some point they probably are, but there seem to be several different points of origin like we have these in america but we also have them in europe we have them in japan in the philippines like they're they're everywhere but it seems to hit a lot of similar beats like it's there's always a woman in white obviously usually has dark hair although not in this movie and often it's kind of a ghost associated with some sort of tragedy often it is a woman who was scorned by her lover by that the uh significant other the man involved uh cheated on her or shut her away or whatever or she's cheating one of those oh interesting uh, there's hmm. Yeah, there is usually an accident or a murder or a suicide involved that led to her death along the road. And now she haunts that road. Yeah, it is interesting that it brings back to the cheating. Wow. Yeah. Why is cheating such a prominent <laughs> theme? <in this? laughs> well, it's also a prominent thing. And I think in most like folklores that involve women, it's always about the the smited, the smited, the slighted woman. Smitten. Um, smitten oh, the slight, smitten yeah. and then slighted woman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah. And, and, you know, the thing with her being on the road is like, you, you drive by, you see a woman in white. And then uh, most of the time, it's like, yeah, bad things will will happen. Yeah. So I thought it was it was interesting. The, the filmmakers um, say that, you know, they're they're French. And this was just a story that was told to them throughout their childhood and something that always scared them, which I love when filmmakers bring in their original trauma <laughs> to horror. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because it also like makes it like, also relatable because like odds are if they were scared of it somebody else was too and like True. but they know how to like really tap into it but with the, the lady in white uh it's also like a pretty old folklore like it goes back to like medieval times too and what you were saying david with the common of like some sort of like tragedy or accident the betrayal of a husband on them uh i also saw that 
it's also related to just themes of loss in general, besides like the betrayal of a husband or accidental death. Also the unrequited love too, which is also here in this movie with Marion and Brad. Or Richard and the woman in white. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was requited. Okay, fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> no, no, no. But yeah, it definitely just, they kind of seem to like have a character to where like the, the lady in white or woman in white like kind of like fixates on all of them in, in some sort of fashion too whether it's like the just the tragedy of the accidental car wreck the husband cheating the unrequited love uh even there's like other like forms of the folklore where even if you if she's haunting you and you're not a cheating husband she will still try to seduce you to make you a cheating person of course um hmm. yeah so and she seduces richard not that we know he's tied down anyone or anything, but still. <laughs> His magazine and him have a very special relationship. Ah, oh, that's yeah. true. Yes. He doesn't go anywhere without that. Him, the magazine, and the tree are in a thruple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, imagine like he, he, he like pins a magazine to a tree and tricks gum. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> is this, is that a realistic scene? I just have to ask because it is so fantastical to me. I've I've never done that. <laughs> no. Um. No. To me, I was like, wait, he had the Playboy in his pants that whole car trip. That's so uncomfortable. Like, yeah. to, oh my also, god. Also, like, you're in a car with your family. I'm like, how do you? <laughs> your parents are right there. I guess this he's is... a teenager. I don't know. <laughs> just man, just those hormones just. Raging. His name is literally Dick. True. <laughs> Dick Harrington. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Can God, we Dick pinpoint Harrington. their ages real fast? Because I was very confused. Because the actor is 26. He does not look oh my God. whatever age you are when you like need to masturbate in the woods, which I assume is like 15. <laughs> yeah, I feel like he's supposed to be like 15. I think she's probably like 19 is my guess for Marion. Well, no, because she's... she though? Because she's a psychiatrist, right? Yeah. Oh, is she? Oh. Yeah, I mean, oh, she yeah. looks no, much they said younger. She was in, didn't they say she was in school for psychiatry? Uh, I thought they said she was already established, but I probably missed that detail. That was my takeaway, too. Uh, I could be wrong. Okay, so she might be, so she's a little bit older. She's probably in her 20s. Well, I'm glad that we were all confused and that no one has an answer. Okay, I feel better now. But maybe that was on <laughs> purpose, too, because this movie does like to play around with time and like what's actually going on and like stuff being confusing so like maybe that's like playing into that i love that you brought up the accelerated time because that was something i was thinking about as well before learning the ending i was trying to figure out you know what everything was supposed to represent obviously because that's the point of the show and the accelerated time was definitely something i noticed specifically in lynn shay's character because mm. looking at her from marion's point of view um, you, you know, you watch your mother age and it kind of seemed like to me this accelerated time of watching her mother go through dementia almost. I mean, I know that she's like in shock mm. from seeing these people die, but she does lose a lot. Did you guys have that reading at all? I didn't, but I like it. Same. Yeah, no, I, I didn't have that reading either, but I do like that take on the, the dementia and like kind of like speeding up her life process yeah it's debatable and her character stands out so much for me because she's the only one that isn't taken away in the black hearse she gets saved and then comes back to the family and dies on the road right mm. Do doesn't she ride through the black hearse for a minute or did i make that up no she does and then she's saved and comes back but she's yeah. she's harmed from that interaction with the black hearse but doesn't die um gotcha 
So true. Yeah. Right. She's also okay. the only one whose body we see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's dark. What do you think yeah. the significance is of that? Because she has like a more graphic death scene that she like feels her brain and it's weird and it's it's almost orgasmic when she's like playing with her brain matter yeah it's a very weird and bizarre scene that's like dark comedy but also very dark i wonder if that's also playing into like her like dementia that you talked about Devin, Mm -hmm. because like this is the only person that we show like the actual like physical harm we see she had head trauma so i wonder if like that's also kind of playing in in manifesting in whatever this dreamlike state we're in in the movie oh yeah that's really because dementia has to do with um well it's questionable but yeah uh brain matter yeah that's interesting and i also thought it's a very dark moment but i also thought it as kind of touching because she and her husband talk about so many like issues sexually so i thought it was really Mm -hmm. lovely that her last moments are her orgasming by touching her brain and then yelling out her husband's name (laughs) (laughs) no that's a good point it's also i get the impression that she's a stay-at-home mom. I don't know if she is or not. I don't know if mm. it's stated explicitly, but that was the reading that I was getting of her. So I think in some ways it's also just commenting on this like torment of her not having a life outside of her family. And then when the one thing her son is taken from her, like that that's it. That's her life. Mm. Yeah. And it's the son of like from the man that she like wishes that she could have been with too yeah. and like explore that life that she only stayed with frank because of marion yeah does she say that she gave up stuff to raise a family or am i mixing that with another movie we get the retelling from frank wise we get the or ray wise sorry we get the retelling from him and his friend telling him about how like the the woman he was pursuing which ended up being his wife said that she couldn't leave the life that she had because she has a child already with this person she didn't want to break up that family yeah yeah and that's really sad because you know it kind of it shows the family as as shackles for her as like this Mm -hmm. is something that she doesn't want to be a part of which seems like a common thread in this family um that they don't really i mean marion wants to break up with her current partner richard is just angry at everybody and doesn't want to be in the car at all (laughs) um frank is very controlling i I guess i'm curious if he wants to be in the family or if he's keeping up for appearances i feel like he's he's a great presentation of of toxic masculinity really the right thing here of of like the pressures of yeah being a man and being a father Mm, yeah definitely and not to get too far ahead of ourselves but there's kind of like that thread of (laughs) doing what you need to do to protect the flock or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But uh, it's his character was interesting because, well, the way they portray him and everyone in this too, because like he goes back and forth from being like a very loving partner and father to the basically abusive on the other end of it too, uh, in certain parts of the movie. So and this movie does that. It, it, it goes back and forth and how everybody is in like this gray area in between everything. There's this great duality because, I mean, yeah, he's he's definitely abusive throughout the movie. Um, I I think it's implied that that's not new. I mean, obviously, they're in a high-stress situation right now, but he literally punches his daughter unconscious. Like, in a high-stress situation, that's not something normal people do, unless there is a history there. He also hits Richard at some point, I think. He, he hits them a couple of times throughout. But then there's also the moment after 
learning that Richard is not his biological son, he rejects that and he says, no, Richard is my son mm -hmm. and we're taking him with us. Like he he isn't going to disown even this like terrible shit kid because he raised the kid. So he, he still sees that as a connection. Devil's advocate um, there just, just to fuck with the idea. Or is he not rejecting the idea of, of Richard not being his child because it would then show a, a, a broken family that he failed as a father that he failed as a husband if he accepts that that reality it's also yeah it's in, it's interesting because like you were just saying how everyone in this family seems to want to get out of the family except for Frank yeah that mm -hmm. Frank is not trying to get out of the family even the note at the end he wants to be the greatest grandfather ever he wants to to do better for the next generation like he i think i think he's to some extent aware maybe of his faults and just doesn't know how to deal with them he isn't able to face them uh this entire movie happens because he insists on driving when mm. he's not okay to no, that's that's a really good point and kind of just going back a little bit to what you two have been saying about how like people do feel trapped in this family and like frank seems to be the only one wanting to try to keep it together but it, we talked about you know marion not wanting to be like held down by like shackles to a family much like how her mom was and everything and it's interesting because i didn't know until one of you let me just said that uh, this was made by french filmmakers mm -hmm. and this when i was watching this i was getting so many vibes of that french play no exit and i don't know if you guys have seen that or read that but no, uh i know of it going back to like the biblical read of this front no exit is a french play written the 1940s it's a it's similar to this in that it's a group of people they they go into a room i think it's a hotel room and they are stuck in there and they are kind of just tormenting each other and like they all know like specifically precisely how to like press each other's buttons and like it turns out that this room that they're in is actually hell and this is their damnation oh. is to torture each other for eternity. They're like the devil isn't there to poke them. It's them. To, like that is their punishment is each other. This is the bad place. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, so, so I was perfect. I was getting so many no exit vibes from this. And it's interesting that that was a French play. And these are French filmmakers, too. So I definitely feel that influence in this. I mean, even the names no exit and dead end oh mean that's a good one the yeah. same thing in different contexts mm -hmm. um i want to go back to the family real fast because you said it is like they're in hell hell is other people hell is family oh so tragic that's that, you just quoted the play too hell is oh. other people that's from that yeah <laughs> great i know that quote i know this play <laughs> perfect so yeah we've established that like these characters are not the greatest do you feel like in the end they redeem themselves at all or that they like are they good people do they deserve what happened to them i don't think that they are good people <laughs> any of them uh well i honestly oh i don't know about brad i feel like we don't have enough information on brad yeah. to really have judgment i feel like marion is the only one that i feel confident in saying she's a good person the others no <laughs> i don't think they're good people <laughs> what makes you say that marion's good i agree but I, yeah i'm curious why you think marion's a good person there isn't an obvious vice or sin because, again, going back to like the, the, my biblical reading on this, this feels very much like their judgment. And Marion just didn't feel like that she had any sort of real vices or sins that were brought up in this besides her being pregnant. And honestly, I don't feel like they made a big enough deal about it. While the other characters do have 
vices and misgivings that get brought up and they all have regrets and she doesn't seem to have any really and she's the one if you want to read the movie as the black hearse is god she's the only one that doesn't get picked up by it, and she's able to walk out of this so i don't know so that, that that's my take on the naughty and nice list for this <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if just having vices is enough to condemn someone that I mean, we're, we're given no redeeming qualities for Richard at all throughout the movie, although I guess we're only shown a small snippet of his life and everyone else seems to be shades of gray like Laura Lynn Shea's character does have these vices and she is breaking down but also like can you blame her she <laughs> Her son was just killed and she has a abusive husband. Like, it, it's hard for me to judge her based on what we see. Brad, I mean, I know you. we don't get that much of him. He seems like he is trying to do well. The whole I will kill myself if you leave me thing is also manipulative and abusive, but it's also comes from a place of mental illness. It is a very complicated situation. I feel really bad for anyone stuck in a situation like that. And then Frank, he is extremely abusive, but he also seems to want to do better. Like, I feel like his arc of the movie is sort of building up to a maybe redemption that he seems to be learning and improving throughout the movie. And then all just gets taken away at the last minute. Mm. I mean, who knows what would have happened if he'd lived, if he had gotten better or not. Who knows? And I think that's the big question. Like, we don't know what he would have been like getting out of this because this whole movie is about how their lives are cyclical and how like they keep repeating mm. patterns and everything so yeah. it's like is this this thing like he abuses apologizes said it'll never happen again and then it does and then it does yeah i yeah. think that it's very jack torrance <laughs> it's very yeah. stanley kubrick jack torrance yes <laughs> well and and like jack torrance or i guess not like jack torrance i mean in reality frank did kill them all you know, he he did crash the car because he refused to pull over or let someone else drive when he was too tired. So ultimately, like, it hits ahead, literally. Well, it's interesting that during the movie, as it goes on, he eventually does let Marion drive. Mm, yeah. Eventually. It takes but, way too long. He's already super drunk before he lets someone else drive, but he finally does. That's a really good point. But is it real? Is it reality? I mean, And that kind of brings us to the last point I want to hit with this film, which is the ending. It's an ambiguous ending. So we end with Marianne waking yeah. up in the hospital. We learn that everyone else has died except for her. There was a car crash. But then I guess it was a post-credit scene. The people picking up the roadside wreckage finds the note that Frank writes, as you said in your summary, David, which then shows oh well this thing that happened in the fantasy that marion was having did actually happen frank did actually write this note question mark what was your takeaway from the ending um it, it, it honestly depends on my mood on how i want to view this movie <laughs> you know like what kind of lens i go into it to me it's the, the note itself it's, it doesn't solidify whether or not the dream was, quote, real or not, but thus that what the note represents was real, which is our, his regrets, and that he had regrets for both the past and the future. He wished he was able to, like, play Atari, and he wished that he was able to be the coolest grandfather. So it's like, it doesn't matter when you die, you're going to have regrets for both your past and your future. And that that is real. That hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you want to go with the it is just all a dream interpretation, 
interpretation. You could also explain the note, say maybe some of these conversations happened earlier. Maybe he knew she was pregnant and had written this otherwise. Oh, I like that read, actually. When I first saw this movie, I thought the end was such a cop out, but it's grown on me over the years. On this watch, I don't want to think of it as a dream because I think that the character building of it is too real and that the arcs they're going through, I think, have to be real. Rather, I do think that it is like this a joint experience that all of them and the woman and baby i mean if you want to say it's all a dream then how do they know that it's a woman and baby that's in the car when they they were had been asleep when it oh. crashed so they definitely wouldn't have known that so all of the dying people are kind of thrown together in this state of limbo where they will either die or move on and like i think that the order they die in the movie is probably the order that they died in real life as well which would imply that they all actually made it into the hearse they all because that was the guy bringing them to the hospital i mean you know, i think some people give him a bit more of a supernatural read i don't know what to make of the scene with him and the doctor it's kind of a weird scene that feels like a different should be in a different movie <laughs> <laughs> it is so strange <laughs> it is weird I, I didn't know how to read that specific ending of it because it does feel very random we're meeting this totally new character of the doctor and this totally new character of the hearse driver it felt kind of like a different sort of cop-out I think in the way that like you could read this as it's highway horror it's a film where it, it you know touches on the fears of car crashes and hitchhiker woman in white black hearse all these other folklore things but if we look at it from the car crash sense let's see the doctor gets in the car with the hearse driver and they drive off through the parking lot and we we zoom out to a wide and see all the other cars in the parking lot and you could read it as like look, this happens all the time. People die in car crashes. Dun, dun, dun. It's it's also interesting, though, that she's not in the back seat, like how we see the other people that do die. She mm. stays shotgun. Mm. That's another one I've been, like, reeling with. It's like, you know, the purpose of them two getting together. Death and life. Mm -hmm. mm. That he's death and she's life, so they are writing together that the two are intertwined. I just pulled it out of my ass. <laughs> no, definitely. Yeah, no, that, that's what I had here. Is that he is representing the Grim Reaper, and she is who opposes that, doctors. So, yeah, yeah there it makes sense that they would ride off together in the sunset. <laughs> I love that. I definitely also read it as he is the Grim Reaper. All black. I mean, if you want to bring that back to religious text, then it's uh, God and the devil. Mm. Interesting. But which is which in this one? <laughs> I, don't, I don't i don't know if it's clear uh, in my opinion because <laughs> I, I i took the guy driving the hearse as god too in this interesting as i mean i think there's the obvious right he's like you know death itself but uh helping people cross over the river sticks and everything but while we're talking about this hospital scene and everything and going back to the biblical stuff and i promise i'm not normally driving this much religion in, into movies i just saw <laughs> it in this one <laughs> it is a christmas movie it is yeah that's true and when when they walk outside the hospital the camera specifically shows that this is called saint luke's hospital the the gospel of luke it's how to be christ-like so in this whole movie seems to be about like judgment and what is your fate and how to treat others and how to behave so i don't know i it, it, it's a loose thread but uh that seemed to be highlighted in that scene i love it Nate. because as david said yeah he's jewish and i haven't read the bible so i we like we, we come in from there i'm 
I'm very happy you're bringing in these perspectives that we just wouldn't have noticed. I, I went a step further. Now, this is crazy town, I, I will admit. But <laughs> the because they, they say that all the clocks stop at 730. And I was like, all right, what is verse? What is chapter 7, verse 30? Oh, yeah. Get 30. <laughs> oh, my God. It, it takes place in this passage where Jesus is kind of like introducing John the Baptist to people and saying like he is a prophet of God. And verse 729, so right before this, is like the Jews and even the tax collectors believed him and that like this is a prophet of God. While verse 30 is the Pharisees and the people that study the law rejecting that this person is a prophet of God. So I guess, you know, if we want to go into, you know, did they go on to hell? Like, were they bad people? Were they on the naughty list? Whatever. But like this kind of that verse at least goes into and these people rejected this prophet. I don't know if that necessarily means anything. I'm probably stretching a little bit, but I just want to throw that out there in case anyone else is able to massage that into a cool theory. <laughs> I mean, with the characters being so gray and like it, it, it lets you judge the characters and then it makes you double guess yourself for judging them. And I feel like the question of whether they deserve their fate or not, I think is up to you to decide and it is kind of mm -hmm. leaving that out there like is this classical idea of heaven and hell or even the naughty and nice list of christmas are they deserved right yeah. yeah and i think it's weird too that like movies or being in the audience of this and being like like you know do you agree with this judgment or whatever i think it's weird that it's like us judging people for like a small snapshot in this because like me coming out of this yeah. Like, oh yeah no like these people are definitely naughty and then all the points you made david and made me go oh wow that was super judgmental of me i like i shouldn't have, have jumped to conclusions <laughs> I love that. I feel like that's a perfect place to to end for this movie because we'll be talking about that a lot more in comparisons with our next film. Yes. Before we get on to our next film, I had a fun little question to ask you guys. So the filmmakers, I was reading an interview uh, with, oh my gosh, the director's name is Jean-Baptiste. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Too good. That's definitely intentional. Yes, 1000%. <laughs> and he was saying why horror attracted him in the first place as his this was his debut film uh he also did it he did it with fabrice canepa or canepa however you say it and they were talking about horror and he said horror buffs are real film fans they're smart and usually more knowledgeable than most film fans do you guys oh, agree with that i know so i love honest. it too i love it too as as horror fans and people who analyze horror films for a living. Well, not for a living. For fun. <laughs> I wish it was for a living. We make no money off of this. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you guys, if you stay to the end of the credits of this movie, that the very end, there is a note. To anyone still with us through these credits, bless you. You sure do love movies. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. I love that. That's so sweet <laughs> for a movie that's so dark. <laughs> also heartwarm. Yes. It's such a Christmassy message. <laughs> God bless us, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with them. I agree with that too. And look at horror. There's characters like, you know, like Randy Minks who have this knowledge of horror yeah. and they put them in movies. Yeah. I mean, part of why I love horror is I feel like it's the filmmaking drives the movie. That so much of a horror film is the directing, it's the cinematography, it's the sound design. Like in a comedy, it all comes down to the performances and the scripts. But in horror, it really is about the filmmaking aspects. It is about trying to incite this very primal emotion in the audience, that emotion usually being fear. 
but it, it's it's really hard to do that, especially because you're trying to invoke an emotion that your audience is going to naturally resist. That we don't want to be afraid. People will watch horror movies saying, "Well, I'm get, I'm gonna prove I'm better than this, and I'm not gonna be afraid by it." So it, it's a monumental task for the filmmaker to incite that anyway, and it, it really requires a perfection of the craft. The best horror movies are the best filmmakers usually i think that is so beautifully said david mm -hmm. absolutely agree because you know there you have to build an atmosphere that is believable to get you in that mood as opposed to like we're saying like a comedy is it's mostly the dialogue i think but uh <laughs> they have to build a world that is convincing enough to have to resist yes. that primal fear that you said or rather yeah. i'd say with something like a comedy it's that it's more forgiving it's more forgiving mm. if the filmmaking isn't intense. I don't want to look down on comedy filmmakers. That's not my intention. <laughs> true, true, true. Comedy's hard. Um, comedy's really fucking hard. Yeah. Well, comedy horror is similar because like, it's set up and punchline and horror is similar, you know, set up and then some sort of scare too to go with it. Mm. So There is a true. current trend right now where a lot of comedians are making horror movies and being really successful at it. Jordan Peele, uh, Zach Krager, yeah. now the uh, Philippou brothers, uh, Raka right. Raka, did talk to me. Yeah, and then the... Oh, frick. Who's the guy that wrote those David Gordon Green Halloween movies? Oh, yeah. Um, that guy. <laughs> yeah. I know who you're talking he... about. <laughs> oh, frick. I can't. Uh, anyways. I like that you um, say the word frick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and with that, you know, I feel like both of the, our podcasts, Autopsy of a Horror Movie and obviously the one that you're listening to, you know, we do approach it from a filmmaking perspective and a respect mm. to the filmmaker. Brecker, I feel like your podcast also touches so much on story and character. You go so deep and I love it. Can you talk a little bit about like how you got into, I guess just like, I don't want to necessarily ask how you got into horror, but how you got into film in the first place. Because I think with that quote, it just like brings about, you know, a different love for not the genre but the industry yeah I, I ever since i was a kid i was always watching movies we we definitely inherit our parents taste i think because that's the first library of vhs's we're exposed to right and uh, i'm a child of divorce and when i go to my dad's we didn't have cable but we just had ton he had loads and loads and loads of movies and so i just watched so many movies on repeat all the time and it like definitely inspired my imagination as a kid to like want to like go and play out these things you know i can tell how many times i've played out indiana jones with a jump rope i got for easter or something and <laughs> i just because i like would watch these things constantly i decided to go you know what's on the bonus features and of like the dvds we have and watching all the featurettes of how stuff got made and i found that fascinating about like how decisions were made the intentions that they were going through and not just the directors but also like like the costume designers and like what like the mm -hmm. other roles we're doing too and it's like wow like these things are it, it's a feat to make a movie and how many people are involved in it and all the decisions that have to be made i i, I think i watched that watched like my first feature or whatever i was like 12 or something i was like holy crap this is awesome and <laughs> i don't know i just always i just, just kind of got hooked from just doing that i think it was specifically the behind the scenes of star wars revenge of the sith and just seeing mm -hmm 
they had like the the obi-wan anakin fight and they had like all of the costumes for like how deteriorated obi-wan's outfit is getting throughout the fight so they had to have like a copy of it for everything i was like i would have never noticed that <laughs> if if his outfit never got dirty or like damaged from the lava i was like i probably would have never noticed but that's insane you just see like the the costumers just like yeah we had to make that for like every sequence in that fight <laughs> it's crazy that. the things they think about I, I feel like yeah in film school i mean obviously we learn all these these tricks and people always talk about oh, it breaks down the magic but i'm with you it it adds to the magic there's like a i yeah. cannot believe that somebody took so much time and so much energy and so much brain power like they're the smartest people ever who could think yeah i need to make a replica with this tiny little thing for me it was zathora uh oh which was really Dumanji in space yeah uh, that was the one where I watched behind the scenes features and it just like changed me. Like what was cool about that one, especially I remember watching and being like, oh, wow, this looks really good. These are some amazing like effects work. Then you get into the behind the scenes and it's like 90% practical. Mm -hmm. Like there is some CGI where they need to. But like when there's a robot chasing around, it's a guy in a robot suit. That's and awesome. there's like the part in the movie because they had to shoot most of it in order because like the house is getting destroyed as they go. There's a part where the robot, while he's chasing them, he slips and crashes into a table. That was not planned. <laughs> that only happened because there was a guy in a robot suit and he just slipped while he was chasing them. And then they were like, oh, my God, are you OK? And he's like, yeah. Did you get the shot? And they're like, yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. So as we're talking about, you know, our love for film and our love for horror, we, we've mentioned your show, obviously, a few times at this point and all the different episodes that you have, which we love. Yeah. Can you give us a little more um, about about your format? Because I think it is so unique in the way that you approach things and you approach things, like I said, from so many different angles that I feel like I'm repeating myself that it's an autopsy, <laughs> but it's such a perfect title. <laughs> it's such a perfect title. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. Um, yeah, definitely. The are like what I call like our normal episodes where we're just like discussing a movie and breaking it down. Uh, the the segments are a fun like general discussion about it like up front, but then like we get into the what subgenre of horror that it slides into, and that's something that I'm always like fascinated with the idea of genre and like what type of niche something falls into, and that's like the fun thing about horror is that it kind of like it has its hands and all of its different pockets of different types of stories. Uh, we have a segment I call like the fear analysis and there are like five basic types of fears that like we kind of use as a springboard to talk about like other things this movie drives from. And then how does that play into the plot? How does that play into how they just did the movie concepted it designed around these certain fears and how is it, how well is it building that atmosphere for you to think about these things? Yeah. I feel like the five fears are well known. It, it, it helps with analysis. I think so much and I bring it when I'm um, looking at you know how to research for these episodes can we touch on what the five fears are was it it's autonomy oh you'd be so disappointed let's see if I have these memorized oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's uh the fear of death uh the fear of loss of autonomy the fear of abandonment worthlessness uh i.e the death of ego mm. Uh, is that four? And then the, I think that one's shame. Oh, um, the fear of like isolation. So th those were the, the five basic fears. Psychologically, we share. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. I think it works so well. And then, yeah, I, I, I'm such a big fan of your show and I'm just so happy that we can, can well, have you, you on again and keep this relationship going. I feel like you're so great at connecting with the horror community, specifically the horror podcast community. Can you tell our listeners where to find your show? And then we'll, of course, put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, people can find Autopsy for Horror Movie anywhere they find podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter or x.com, which, whichever you want to call it, uh, Instagram, TikTok, at Brucker Horror, and also Threads. Perfect. All right, we ready for our next film? Yeah. Kevin, start us off. It's Christmas. Nothing bad will happen on Christmas. Come on, we all know that's not the case here. Max's family is falling apart. Everyone is so preoccupied with work or boyfriends or decorating the house to act like a family for the holidays. Oh, and it gets worse when Max's extended family comes to visit. His cousins pick on him endlessly, his sister could really care less, and all the parents seem to do is ignore it and criticize one another. The next morning, the family wakes up to a blizzard. No heat, no electricity, and no running water. Kind of strange. Kind of the worst white Christmas ever. Max's sister treks out in the snow to visit her boyfriend and see if he has power. When she doesn't return, Dad and Uncle Howard go and search for her. But when they come to the boyfriend's house, no one is there, and the house is destroyed. And by destroyed, I mean like literally ripped in two. After narrowly escaping an attack from an unknown creature, the family returns home and boards it up in fear. Max's grandmother recognizes this omen from the old country. Could this be Krampus coming back for revenge? Over the course of the night, the family is taken one by one from a slew of creatures. Killer gingerbread men, elves, a man-eating jack-in-the-box, a teeth teddy bear, and pretty much the creepiest fucking angel topper I've ever seen. All before the big reveal of the shadow of Saint Nicholas, Krampus himself. After all his family is taken, Max blames himself for Krampus coming. He bravely stands up to the beast, asking to be taken in place of his family. But then Krampus throws him down to the fiery pit of hell below. The next morning, Max wakes up and it's Christmas. Everyone is happy and has somehow forgotten about the attack, or have they? Max opens a present to find a Krampus bell, and soon the memories flood back. Zoom out St. Elsewhere style, the family is just in a snow globe on a shelf. Merry Christmas. This is Krampus, directed by Michael Doherty, written by Michael Doherty, Zach Shields, and Todd Casey. Cool. Uh, Devin and I actually saw this movie in theaters together uh, oh, so no many way. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was also the first time that I heard about the being Krampus. I think mm. I thought he was an original movie monster at first, and then I quickly found out that that was not the case. That'd be <laughs> so cool if it was, though. <laughs> I totally... Because I think that, like, the following year or something, they had that movie called Christmas Horror Story, something like that, which was more of an anthology type thing, and Krampus is in that as well. And I was confused because I was like, wow, is, is he that popular already? It's like, no, he's, he's an older monster. <laughs> I love that. You're like, wow, there's already bargain ripoffs. <laughs> I actually really liked that movie. That was a good movie, Christmas Horror Story. But do we want to talk about the myth of Krampus and like how that factors into here? Why did they choose to use Krampus? Does he represent something in this movie? Why Krampus? What is Krampus? Yeah. I can give like a basic overview and David, I think you went a little bit deeper with the history stuff because I am very bad at being a history nerd. I think you did. <laughs> <laughs> I have a history podcast and I am not a history nerd. Um, yeah. So Krampus has always been seen as the anti-Saint Nicholas. Well, originally he wasn't even tied to Christmas in the first place, actually. He's pre-Christmas. Is he pre-Christian uh, mythology? Um, but he's a, he's oh, a pagan deity. I think it's debated exactly how far back he goes and where he originates from. I saw some saying that he might have 
originally and from Norse and that he could even be like a son of Hela, I think. Mm. What was one theory on his origin? Uh, Hela is the Norse god of death. If you saw Thor Ragnarok, then that's Hela, although they changed everything about her. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that was his beginnings, right? Is like acting as kind of a, a grim reaper of of taking people into the underworld. And when Christianity started being spread more, um, specifically uh, in in Austria, which is where uh, Krampus like is really beloved, embedded in their culture, that he started becoming the the anti Saint Nick and was used as a, a a moral folklore for children. That if you know children were not acting nice if they were acting naughty that Krampus would come and take you to the underworld. Sometimes he would eat them. Sometimes he would whip them with branches. I think we all know the office episode. I'm hoping. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that's how I got exposed to Krampus the first time was the office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's much darker. Yeah. See, I had the opposite thing of you, David. I like saw that office episode and thought that they made it up for that. And then the movie came out. I was like, whoa, they made a movie off of this thing Dwight said. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Which is, man, it's great. so fascinating that, yeah, we, I mean, in America aren't really taught about Krampus, but it is such a big thing specifically in Austria. I mean, they have a whole holiday and parades typically earlier in, in the year. I think it's just Krampus knot, uh, which is Krampus night or dark knot, something like that. The idea being that there's this evil character kind of like also makes Santa Claus more of like a saintly good character because then Santa is supposed to come after Krampus comes and takes the children and he celebrates the good children. So it's kind of that tale of like act good so you don't get taken to hell or eaten by the goat man. And then later on you get presents. <laughs> so there's there's no redemption in this though. It's it's very finite. Americans just watered all of this down to you'll get a lump of coal. Yeah, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> How boring. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not afraid of, of a lump of coal. Right. Yeah, that doesn't change anything. We over here in America, we need to take more advantage of the Krampus mythology. Like Pepsi needs to start putting Krampus on their cans oh. since Santa's on the Coca-Cola cans. We Pepsi needs to take advantage of this. I like that more. <laughs> We all know that Christmas was made by Coca-Cola so that they could put Santa Claus on their cans. That's what they say in the movie, right? 100%. <laughs> Actually, in some of my research, I found that Christmas also kind of predates Christianity. Mm. That it was the the original idea of the festive holiday. I mean, it's the winter solstice, but it was also about, I forget which deity now, but there was another Roman deity that it was originally about. And then it became appropriated as Christianity blew up in in rome and the holiday transformed into a christian idea but it does actually have these pagan roots as well which kind of blew my brain <laughs> to realize but i'm like that's neat they're like i mean i'm jewish but i still grew up with christmas my mom was raised catholic but was not practicing at all she is atheist she would not refer to herself as catholic so i was raised jewish but we still had the christmas and easter from my mom's side of the family so we still celebrated that, but celebrated like a completely secular version of Christmas. I like never put it together that it was a religious holiday until I was older. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a common thing in like pretty much every major Christian holiday, even like Halloween, Christmas and Easter. They're mm. all were pagan holidays that they just 
took to, to make popular. Like even like the, the tradition of gift giving is a pagan tradition. That's not a Christian mm-hmm. thing. They just co-opt that. But I think also just something about the idea of this holiday at the winter solstice as it's getting extremely cold outside. And we just all sort of huddle together with our families around a fire with hot chocolate and exchange gifts like and it's the end of the year. Like all of it kind of just fits together where it makes sense that this would be some sort of cultural touchstone regardless of religion. It's interesting that you look at like the winter solstice time as it seemed like you described it as very joyful, but I kind of took the opposite of like back then, I'm sure it was miserable. It was dark. It was cold. I mean, they don't have the technology we have today. So it was like fucking cold. You know, I'm sure you had to ration food because you don't have evergreen crops. It was definitely a harder time. So I can see why they would want to create this holiday or have this holiday to celebrate and have a little joy. Yeah. And this is pure speculation, but if you don't have a good relationship with your family, if you aren't able to get along and cuddle up with them, then you're doomed to the cold. There is actually, in the primal humanity, there would be this idea of requiring that to survive. So you can kind of link that. This is pure speculation. I don't know if there's any historical evidence for this whatsoever, (laughs) but it seems like it follows and makes sense. That totally makes sense. And winter itself has always been kind of like a metaphor analogy in like poetry as death is coming Mm -hmm. to, you know, like crops dying, people getting sick and everything. And um, yeah, so I I think that totally tracks with the weird kind of like holly jolly time that we have with this, but like... And it's uh, pretty. (laughs) Yeah, but it's pretty. Yeah. Yeah. One one a white Christmas. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's kind of outdated and this movie talks about this a lot about, you know, losing hope or losing the joy of Christmas. But if we live in a modern world where like we are able to connect with each other, we aren't losing our crops, we aren't cold, hopefully most people you know it's it's just a it's a dying idea that we need this specific time to really celebrate being happy it's a nice idea i mean most of the time i feel like a lot of people are miserable so we need something to to look forward to but not in the way that that they did in the olden times so this idea of like oh christmas joy is dying maybe doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as it once did for like someone like omi for example the grandmother in in this film Yeah, I mean, there is still an idea, even in modern America, that you always hear about all the people being happy on Christmas, but there is definitely also a significant number of people who are not happy on Christmas. Mm -hmm. And, like, the suicide rate goes way, way up for Christmas and New Year's. And, I mean, that can be a worldwide thing as well, as you said, Omi. So let's talk about Omi. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) Coolest grandmother, yeah. Uh. Coolest grandmother, and I mean that beautiful flashback. It is CG animated, but it's CG animated like in a way that is inspired by stop motion. Uh, they described it. Uh, uh, Michael Doherty instructed the animators that he wanted to feel like. I pulled out this quote. Let me find this real fast. Um, he wanted the feeling that this piece of animation had been crafted by an incredibly old yet talented Austrian stop motion animator. And the film reel has been sitting in his basement for generations waiting to be unearthed. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's great. That is how it feels. Yeah. (laughs) It's wonderful. uh, And I love it. What do you guys think it adds to the movie? It definitely plays into kind of like the the major themes of you know like the spirit dying or trying to keep the spirit and Devin like what you were saying like there's kind of like a difference in that meaning in like the old world like like what she grew up with in Austria and for her it was like the spirit was giving and helping each other turn and everybody like was kind of like fending for themselves uh, at that point in history in Austria 
and in in the states it's turned from helping each other to helping each other and also being grateful when you do get help so i don't know Mm -hmm. that was kind of what i felt like this was playing into yeah i like that and playing off of that a bit i mean david i I think you'll go into this a little bit more but yeah the the flashback being in omi's world was around wartime or a siege time i will leave that for for david to explain hopefully and then yeah i I think your comparison with the modern american time is really interesting and the fact that it it is almost saying this right now what we're going through in like a societal emotional state is as bad or similar to this like this war-torn country at this point it's kind of the feeling that michael doherty is giving i mean the whole intro to this movie is um, a bunch of people running into into the department store and it's it's like a war scene almost. It's shot, you know, people in fighting with each other. It's in slow motion. It's like pretty destructive and pretty violent. So it does feel like he is saying something a little bit about like, hey, there's a war going on outside. It may not be like a bunch of people are, you know, dying in the sense that, that they were in the 1900s, but there's definitely an emotional or social crisis going on, specifically an attack on mm-hmm. Christmas. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. <laughs> Yeah, no, they have that that news anchor specifically call out war on Christmas phrase in this. Yes, yes. Which something Devin found actually in the research was that in Nazi Germany, there was actually a war on Christmas, that the Nazis saw Christmas as a threat, that they they didn't like that Jesus was Jewish. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, so they literally tried to take Christ out of Christmas. They replaced him with Hitler in some place, that like silent night was rewritten so instead of christ the savior was born was the savior Führer was born oh man <laughs> uh, it's really fucked up they didn't like that on the christmas trees people usually put either the star of david which is a jewish symbol or the five-pointed star which is a communist symbol so they got rid of those as well they they would use either crosses or swastikas uh there was a lot of swastika imagery built into nazi christmas it it reads like a parody it, like <laughs> it's like what the fuck is this this really happened but yes it really happened they rewrote all the christmas carols it's like what the hell omi's flashback i don't think was nazi germany but it's adjacent uh they never give you a specific time and place we can infer very reasonably that it's austria because the character is Austrian and the filmmaker said that it's Austrian, (laughs) but a date is never given. I did some research trying to narrow it down. And I want to say that it is 1946. Uh, The actress Mm. herself was actually born in 1942. I don't think she's playing her actual age. She's a little bit older, but that still pretty much lines up. So 1946, the World War II had just ended. Um, It ended in 1945. Hitler killed himself. And then Germany and Austria were both, broken up by the allied powers they they went a little easier on austria than on germany because they kind of saw it as a victim as well there were a lot of movements to not villainize the austrian people too much uh they were telling their soldiers like please don't rape the austrians please don't do that Jeez. so that gives you a good idea of where we're at and the country was divvied up so like this portion was u.s occupied this portion was england occupied this portion was french occupied this portion was soviet occupied just like germany and one issue is that the 
part of Austria that fell under Soviet occupation had most of the food and oil and they didn't want to share. So the entire country just collapsed into like their economy was destroyed. They were going hungry. And we see that in the movie that they're like very limited rations. They're fighting over mm -hmm. a loaf of bread. It, they, they, the, the country was obliterated, basically, um, in very similar ways to how Germany was probably more infamously eviscerated after World War II. So was Austria. And that seems to be where we're set. And I saw this this horrible quote specifically talking about how Christmas was celebrated in Austria or not celebrated in Austria during the war and after during during the time that, that David mentioned in 1946. This historian said people stopped celebrating, which we see in, in, in Omi's flashback retelling is that they give up hope on Christmas. He says that people basically started saying, think practically about Christmas, give coffins as presents. Like that's how Ooh. dark it was. Ooh. And that's how much people like didn't want to be celebrating Christmas at this time. That's a tough beat. Yeah. And I mean, like, it, so her parents are taken away in the flashback, which I guess can also slightly, I mean, the reason why I was questioning whether or not it was, yeah, World War II or the, the this unrest, the unrest in Austria and in the aftermath is like Krampus could be seen as a Nazi symbol of people being killed during World War II. Maybe the Nazis didn't like Krampus. It's a kind of ironic because you could argue like since Krampus predates the religious meaning of the holiday and is Germanic, it seems like they should have liked him, but they didn't because he was adapted by the more religious members of the population. So they, they, they didn't like him either, and they tried to get rid of him. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. It was like the history in Austria before World War II, in like World War One, and I know we're spending a lot of time on Krampus, and we'll move on, I promise, um, was like more of a social democrat. People who were social democrats in Austria during that time were more likely to celebrate Krampus, and there was like a war on Krampus politics-wise. It's super <laughs> fascinating. There was so much war over whether or not we should allow Krampus to be celebrated and people got punished if they were celebrating Krampus um, prior to World War II. We are doomed as a species. We'll fight over anything. <laughs> I was like, hey, this uh, <laughs> this fucking goat man that takes children. Yeah, you can't. Let's not do this anymore. Let's make a big war about it. <laughs> Bringing it back to the film. <laughs> Full circle. There's all this infighting from back then in that flashback but then that's juxtaposed with the fighting among the family is something i would argue yes. that it may seem more petty in the present tense although i guess it was pretty petty of the nazis to war on christmas because christ is a jew <laughs> that's, that's a pretty light way to put it yeah <laughs> the nazis were petty yeah that's pretty light to say <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> How do you feel that this relates to the modern context of the film? Oh, interesting. To me, it felt like that this was trying to parallel a lot to Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol. Mm. And it was, was a similar sort of theme, like the spirit of Christmas in that to be ge generous and giving and wanting to the spirit of helping people, even, you know, if you're in, you know, I guess like war torn Austria or even like modern day where, you know, thankfully we're not like in a war torn country or anything, but like, you know, there are petty things that we argue about and things that we put each other down for that aren't 
in the grand scheme of things that big of a deal and that we should be generous and also thankful for others generosity and i find it interesting that this movie does bookend on imagery from a christmas carol we have mm. somebody is watching tv and they show like jacob marley showing up to scrooge oh and then the end of this movie with max being thrown down that fiery pit is much like at the end of that story right before scrooge wakes up when he's with the ghost of christmas future and he's digging his own grave, showing how because of his lack of generosity and spirit, people don't care about him. And this is the fate he's doomed to through the fiery pits of hell or whatever. And that he wakes up. Um, so I find it interesting that the movie books in on those. And Charles Dickens wrote that not to write a Christmas story, but to write something about like, motherfuckers, y'all need to be more generous <laughs> and help people out. And I'm going to frame it around this Christmas story. <laughs> so Michael Doherty also wrote a comic book set in the universe of Krampus around the same time that the movie came out. I think it came out a few days earlier. And it's basically an anthology set around all this stuff. I didn't read it, but I looked at a summary. So <laughs> He did that comic book thing for Trick or Treat, too. Oh, really? He did. Oh, I want to So the reason I bring it up right now is that in the third segment of the comic book, they actually, like, they, they straight up do a Christmas carol, basically, mm. with Krampus theme. I would say that, like, I, I know I'm jumping ahead here, but... Christmas Carol has a happy ending. Yes, we agree. Yeah. This one, it's questionable if it if it does, right? Which which I find interesting that Michael Doherty did. Yeah, I like I like the allusion to to the Christmas Carol, but he very specifically chose to not have a happy ending for this film. I guess first thing I should ask is what your interpretation is of the ending because it could maybe have a happy uh, uplifting beat to it. My interpretation is cynical in that it's not happy. <laughs> um, because like, sure, while they wake up to a Christmas morning that seems nice, they are all reminded of why they're there. And to me, since they're like stuck in this snow globe, at least up into, into interpretations that like, kind of like no exit, are they doomed to just repeat this day forever now? That was my interpretation as well. It's not what Doherty intended. Mm. So, yeah. So apparently the actual idea of what the ending is supposed to be is that Krampus let them go, that he accepted Max's sacrifice and let them all go, but he's keeping an eye on them. And the snow globe is more of like a seeing glass that he is using to spy on them. And they're aware that he is watching them. So they have to keep in line or he will be back. And he may not be so merciful next time. Oh. oh. That's what hmm. it's supposed to be. I agree with your interpretation, though. And I think that it's supported by the movie better. Yeah. Because the ending is weird in its filmmaking in several ways. It's a weird movie. <laughs> First, it's... uh. In that final scene, all of the windows are blown out. They're completely overexposed, and it, it makes it feel like the house is not present in a specific time and place. Yeah. This is contradicted when Max first wakes up and looks out the window, and it's like the Groundhog Day shot, like, oh, everything's normal, blah, blah, blah. But then when he goes downstairs, all the windows are blown out now, and it, it gives me the impression that this isn't real, so to speak, which is further amplified because like all of their wardrobe and makeup is so much nicer. They all have really good hair all of a sudden like it it doesn't jive with how we've been seeing these characters the whole time they're all now wearing mm -hmm. like these nice little christmas sweaters it's like 
overly hallmark. It, it, it is very hallmarky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think that's a good observation. I mean, it could also just be a commentary too on a normal Christmas movie or a typical Christmas movie. I think this this film touches on so many classic Christmas films like A Christmas Carol. I see so much Christmas vacation in here. Obviously, the stop motion CGI animation is touching on some of the classic stuff. So it could also be a commentary on like, oh yeah, Christmas morning in, in movies is always like super happy and beautiful and it's a white Christmas outside and, you know, despite anything that had happened happened the night before. I originally thought I, I had the same reading of the ending as as both of you, but I kind of like Michael Doherty's more because um, for me, I think it supports the arc that I was seeing throughout the film. Personally, I don't believe these are terrible people. I think there are several moments throughout the movie where we see them being able to to rectify their differences or come together and and be a family. So I feel like they don't deserve the sad ending of like they are in a snow globe and they are doomed to live this day over and over again because they do show show some redemption throughout the film. So it would be absolutely devastating if they did not get the chance to go back and, and to become a family, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, like, they bully each other a bit, but they don't really do anything that horrible. Like They uh, are a very typical family, I feel like, right? It, it, it felt super relatable. <laughs> the little cousins uh, steal his letter and read it out loud. That's like the worst thing anyone does in the movie. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to me, it's like just how ungrateful like everyone is yeah. to like the other's hospitality and everything. Mm. I was just like, oh, mother, just go sleep in your fucking Hummer. <laughs> like I was, I was like, wow, because like I was like, fifteen minutes in, it's like when they kind of had like that blow up in the kitchen and everything. I was like, wow, this is normally like the climax of like one of these like dramas, like towards like the end of the movie. We're already here. Fifteen <laughs> minutes. <in>. Yeah. <laughs> but from that moment though, from because it's interesting because we do start with the dinner scene, which like you said, it's usually later in the film and that is the worst of it but then from that moment you know past the 15 minute mark we see each other you know they're going after the the daughter they're going to save her when they do end up having the big climax where they're being attacked by all the different toys you know they they try to save each other there's really beautiful moments specifically between the sisters uh, tony Clutt's character and her sister I, I, what i what i love this one moment where the sister looks at the angel on the tree topper and is like, Oh, you got mom's angel. And Tony Clutt's character says, Yeah. And mm. it's like, a, it's a beautiful moment. And in that, usually what I would see happen in a normal family setting, most family settings, is that you got mom's thing. Like, I wanted that. And then the big, like, blowout ensues. <laughs> you know, like, that's a very easy point to right. like, make a fight over something so precious as the, as the tree topper. But there's like respect in that moment. Because it is like, this moment that is meant to show us that like even though they seem like they hate each other do they really hate each other exactly it, it sparks a time when they did get along i mean like they talk about how they fought when they were kids but like that's normal yeah. it, it did bring up memories that they didn't hate that they had with each yeah. other it's even like with like it's it's stated that max and beth don't get along and then like you can kind of see when beth is like trying to calm Max down and she's not trying to stop the cousins from being mean to him. She's trying to tell him like, just don't react to it. But like, she means it as she's trying to defend him and protect him. She She's not succeeding because she's a teen who doesn't know how to do that correctly, but like she's trying. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's that beautiful, almost heartbreaking moment between the two parents where 
they're sitting watching the snow outside and she puts her head on his shoulder and is like, I miss us. To me, that mm -hmm. shows a family that is suffering, but that doesn't mean that like they don't want this to work. Like something is going on between them. I mean, just life. Life is happening and it's like putting pressure on them, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to be a family that they don't want to still be together and that there still isn't love there. I mean, the kid doesn't think there's love there, but I think that moment between the adults shows that there there is and that there's still hope that they can get back to that. And I think this is also why Omi's flashback is so impactful as well, to bring it back to that, that she is contrasting this with a time when there really was no hope. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you guys are fighting over this insignificant silly stuff this is where i came from and it's so dark and fucked up like you 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 kids have not actually dealt with all that much really and you should be pretty mm -hmm. happy with your situation <laughs> yeah. yeah it goes by the whole thing about like you should be grateful for what you do have right you're not a six-year-old girl who adults are like robbing the bread from you in the yeah. streets yeah <laughs> I'm curious if you guys think the movie has any political message. I mean, you have the flashback with an obviously political backdrop, but also like the families are kind of coded with politics. They never actually state their politics, but there is that coding that this part of the family is conservative, this part of the family is liberal. Do you think the movie is trying to create a political message that is trying to make anything come across? I don't think it is to be honest i don't think it's trying to get across any sort of political message besides that maybe set aside our differences we can team up but i didn't see it as because i feel like normally when that happens there's like a side the movie has and it didn't really feel like it had a side it's more of just like after a few glasses of wine at christmas dinner these sort of things these people talk about right <laughs> yeah I agree. I mean, even with the bringing in of the gun, I feel like it wasn't it wasn't brought in as a, a political representation. I think it is just a, a symbol to show a disconnect between two people. I think guns are a place that a lot of people disagree about, especially in a family, especially in class. I think class is discussed a lot in this film as mm. well. But it isn't brought into the sense of like, they're not talking about gun laws. They're not talking about, you know, specific politicians or theories or anything like that. It's just like, oh, you have a gun. And, and later on, I mean, it, it, to me, the gun symbolizes um, when he later brings it out to to use against the creatures and Adam Scott is willing to take the gun. It shows that they are, you know, connecting more at this point. So it, I feel it more as a, as a symbol of moving from disconnect to connection rather than a, a political standpoint. And I agree, uh, Brucker, I don't think that the the film takes a side on any of it either mm -hmm. it does that reverse of uh reaganomics trickle down it trickles up the guns to did it. To, to, to the liberal family you did it. <laughs> we almost made it throughout the episode and then it Brooke was like i need to bring it up and i'm gonna find a way to bring it up and he did it <laughs> yes so i would argue though that this is a political message in itself that it is basically saying that it's kind of a centrist viewpoint. It is saying that there are arguments to be had on both sides and that we should work to get along and compromise and things like that. Mm. I, I think the movie is trying to be apolitical, but I think that when you try to be apolitical, that is in itself a political statement. It's kind of saying that politics aren't that big of a deal. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it shouldn't be, right? And I think that's what 
it's kind of getting at a little bit that like you know we can set aside our differences and board up the windows and fight gingerbread men <laughs> yeah. it doesn't matter this is pre-trump right this movie is yeah well i was trying to he, this was during his he was doing all those rallies but true 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 it's pre his term yeah but they would have shot it before he started running even yeah. very true yeah i think it has because then again it's contrasting with the older time when there was more of a political upheaval and like Austria was torn because of political differences, because you had the Soviet Union on one hand and the the Western powers on the other splitting the country in half and creating all this dissonance. Like it's almost saying that the fighting is the real problem and we should just all get along. <laughs> but the film didn't yes. touch too much on the history. This is, of course, that's bringing in a lot of yeah. research into the film. But yeah, it's I think if, if this was made after Trump, it definitely would have been a lot. A lot more political. It, it would be a very different movie if it was made during or after Trump. It, that would yeah. that I feel like that would have to play a bigger role then. Yeah, but it's definitely playing it safe with its politics. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, well, I feel like this is a good place to bring us into our comparison section where we can talk about how both these movies play off of each other. So we thought it was perfectly fitting to talk about Christmas films involving family. This is the main theme that we've wanted to talk about today. So thinking about that and thinking about family. How do you think these films present, I guess, the question of like how how we act with our family? Do we owe our family anything? Do we have a responsibility towards our family? We talked a little bit about it in Dead End with, you know, the toxic masculinity of Frank and a little bit about it with Max and Omi and, and Krampus, if they owe their family anything to save them. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how your read was for, for both these films and how they take on family? Yeah, I mean, they both definitely touch on family themes. And I think like both movies kind of present the question, should families stick together? Yeah. And Dead End, I think, answers, no, it's okay if the family breaks up, if it's for the mm. better. While Krampus says it's possible to see the family rebuild and find their love for each other again. So I, I find it interesting that they in my opinion, pose the same question, but take different routes to answering it. Why do you say that Dead End says it's okay to break up with your family? Well, the whole movie is you're watching the family break up. Lynn Shay's character, obviously, I think has some regrets of who she chose to have her life with. And Marion doesn't want to fall into that same trap, I think, because she sees what it's like to have to raise a family based on a lie. And she's wanting, to, in my opinion, wanting to learn from those mistakes. We also see how she does need, it would be probably beneficial for her to get away from abusive people, including her boyfriend, Brad, and possibly her dad as well. Uh, not just for her, but for the family she wants to raise uh, if she decides to keep the baby to not have these abusive people in her child's life, too. Sometimes it's okay to break away from toxic, abusive family dynamics to benefit yourself. So, and that's that's kind of like what I was getting from Dead End in that. It's interesting because I don't know if Dead End presents it as an option to get away from your family. That mm -hmm. I agree with everything you're saying, but I, I, it feels like in that movie they are stuck together, both literally, physically, but also as we learn more about them, Lynchay couldn't leave Frank because she had to look after her daughter. Marion needs Frank to help her with her baby. Yeah, it. <laughs> I, I agree that it shows that like you couldn't get away, but I think it, the important thing is that it poses the question of should they. And mm. it's interesting when like looking at these films together because I, that question 
question obviously is brought up in both in a way, but in comparison to Krampus, it's like, okay, these people, they need to cool their jets. They want to leave their family because they don't get along because she didn't serve ham at Christmas. Like in comparison of dead end where the father is slapping his daughter, like let's look at like the extremes of what a family dysfunction could look like. Right. And kind of take it with a grain of salt in Krampus. So yeah, it's interesting to see more of an extreme in dead end. And I think it is fitting that, no, I think it's more sad. I think it's more sad that they, they don't get a get away. Um, mm. but there is a happy ending in, in Krampus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a definite like arc of, you see that they can put aside their differences and co- come together again, where I don't know, they really get that chance in dead end as much. Yeah. Krampus, I'd say they straight up have to that, uh, not even that there's no choice. I think they do have a choice and the correct choice is to stick together in Krampus. <laughs> that That's literally what Krampus's punishment is. If they don't learn to get along, then he's going to come back and kill them all. But even like when Howard keeps saying a shepherd has to protect his flock, it's the idea that they are required to protect each other. They have to look out to each other. But I don't see that in Dead End at all, you know? Yeah, I don't see that in Dead End. Well, in Dead End... Frank believes that, I think, because he has, like, the insistence on driving the car and whatnot, but he's wrong, and he gets them all killed. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he thinks he's doing what's best for the family, but it's not yeah. the best for the family. No, and even the way that he he treats the children in the very beginning when they're, you know, all in the car and they're doing what seems like such benign fighting at this point. The parenting there is not very good. Like he has an asshole child, Richard is a dick, and they're not doing <laughs> shit about it, you know? It's just like, oh, shut up, Richard. But I, I, I hate when other people comment on parenting, but I feel like that is what is presented in this film specifically of like, they're not great parents, but also they're not a great couple. Like at no point, well, okay, we see some some points where like there was a semblance of, of love in that relationship, but my God, the way Frank treated Lynchay's character, it was just mm. heartbreaking. She can't do anything without him screaming at her. <laughs> and also, like, it was really sad, too, her saying how she knew about all the affairs and how, like, she couldn't satisfy his sexual fantasies and everything. But then her going, but I'm okay with it. Like, I understand. And it's like this weird, like, he's, like, manipulated without even knowing. He's, like, manipulated her to be like, this is just the life she has to live and she's okay with it now. Yeah, what a weird double standard, too. It's like he can get away with it but then he gets fucked up over the idea that she cheated on him um or she has to keep that secret yeah yeah it's it's like a weird way to look at 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 gender there i I do feel like dead end explores gender in a really interesting way it does yeah Mm -hmm. and um, he's after lust and she's after love Mm -hmm. too and like in the reasons that they cheated and everything it's interesting do you think krampus has any exploration of gender Hmm. Well, I guess maybe a little bit with like the the patriarchs of the families having to be the the people that what's the phrase? Oh my God, protect the flock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a little something there. I think it does play into stereotypes a little bit. Yeah, the typical father working too much and the mother who's obsessed over the way her family looks um, in terms of like decorating the house, like Martha Stewart and the yeah. family Christmas photo. I don't know if it necessarily comments on anything more than it just presents these stereotypes. Yeah, I agree with that. Like the the most it gets into criticizing the stereotypes is just with Howard wishing his daughters were boys. Oh, that's true. We have that whole exploration. Yeah. (laughs) Stevie and Jordan. Yeah. And you have uh, their brother who he never talks the brother in the movie. I don't know if they're trying to imply some disability there or not, but 
there's something going on there. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I yeah. wish we'd been able to explore that more. There, there were some interesting dynamics that didn't get explored too thoroughly and i feel like they could have been well that's it i mean you do mention now that now that we're thinking about it more yeah the mention of the protect the flock which is masculine i I keep wanting to say toxic masculinity but i just feel like it's not i mean our shepherd is a woman but (laughs) 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 but yeah there is that like howard wanted his daughters to be boys maybe because the boy that he does have is not living up to the dream of masculinity that he wants him to be that he is possibly has a disability that you know he's not uh not the strongest character that we see in the film he is the first Mm. no he's the second to die yes the first to die is the sister beth um Weird choice, ballsy choice. Yeah, I, I love how uh, that, that's one thing though. I, lo- I do love how this movie focuses. It's all the kids that get captured up first, for the most mm. part. I mean, I mean, I think Howard gets mixed in there at some point, but there's a lot of imagery of children crying and screaming and kicking, being yeah. t- ripped away from their families. And with that whole shepherd's gotta protect his flock thing, there's this weird. I feel like when a family member in a horror movie dies not even a child but just someone who they are related to who are they are immediately related to dies it is more impactful in many ways like you can't really have too much fun with those deaths it there there is this extra bit of sadness that just inherent to it and like like it it transforms the other characters you are not the same person after you have lost your child yeah grief is really difficult in both of these films yeah and getting back to like the men versus women so like uh why did i keep forgetting the phrase uh defending the flock sorry i keep butchering that phrase but um i find it interesting too now that i think about it and you pointed out that adam scott and howard in this they say that phrase a lot and we do see them going out and trekking through the winter but it's it's Tony Collette that runs into the chimney to grab Howie Jr. And it's also mm. her sister that grabs the axe and actually defeats all the monsters up in the attic. Like, we actually don't see the men have an attempt to physically save anybody, mm. but we see all the women do it, too. In this. And I think the dog hmm. is also a female. Oh, yeah. The dog seems oh, yeah. like Rosie Abby or something. Rosie. Rosie. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> and she goes after them, Good too. Dog. Does Rosie mm-hmm. make it through the movie? She goes into the vents at that one point. I think she is supposed to die in the. I think she dies in the events. Is she with them in the snow globe? I don't remember. I hope so. I hope so. Don't tell me the dog's the only one who stays dead. (laughs) I seriously thought this movie was going to end when they unleashed Rosie into the vents. I seriously thought this movie was going to end with Rosie just eating everything right then and there and saving the day. (laughs) (laughs) Rosie, Rosie is good dog. I think uh, something both these films present also in terms of family is the family secret i feel like this Mm. is played a lot more in dead end um where everyone reveals most people reveal some sort of dark secret that they've been keeping from their family that ends up causing a little uh drama in krampus it is a little more subtle i mean omi has this what i think is a secret um adam scott acts very surprised when he hears the story the angel topper we talked about with the sisters but it seems to be more accepted or more able to get over in krampus what did you guys think about the the family secrets dynamic did you i don't i'm yeah i mean i think in krampus i i wouldn't necessarily call omi's backstory a secret as much as just a thing she doesn't talk about because it was traumatizing that it's not like they aren't allowed to know it's just that how would they know whereas in dead end they're actively keeping secrets from each other it's a whole theme of all the things coming out that 
Marion is pregnant, that Laura had this affair, that Richard is not really Frank's son, that Richard smokes pot. I feel like they really should have known that last one, but apparently they didn't. He should have owned up to jerking off in the woods, just saying. Like, that's, <laughs> that, that should have been the thing that he said. <laughs> oh my god. One step at a time. One step at a time. I smoke pot. And, uh, and I'm in a throuple with a tree. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with you, David, that it feels more like the, the, the family secrets in Dead End is more playing to the themes of the movie. Well, yeah, the, the, the secret in Krampus is more of like, these are the rules to this movie. This is what's happening. If anything, the secrets in Krampus might be the opposite. It might be the secrets of when they read Max's letter and they're like kind of taken aback that he's like wishing good things for them the secrets are that they actually care about each other that they'll never say that but that is the implication that we're getting so in dead end the secrets are that they don't care about each other in krampus the secrets are that they do Mm. and that's a good point too about max's letter how he's wishing good things for people but they're mad that he's wishing good things for people yeah like how how could you say that how could you be nice to us you don't don't take the high ground and then he goes fine i wish my family would disappear and then he home alones them all (laughs) yeah (laughs) it is it is very home alone the opening it is it is for sure but they feel guilty, and I think that yeah. they feel guilty that that he wishes that because they probably do, but they're they're not brave enough to say it, or mm. you know they've been growing up in in this functionality for a while that it's you know what they know and how how to be a family is too spat and too bicker all the time. And when he mm-hmm. sacrifices himself, the person who he is trying to save is Stevie. Of all the members of the family, Stevie is the one right. who he's actually trying to save in that moment. Everyone else he thinks is gone. So it is specifically this bratty cousin who was bullying him, and now he is giving, willing to give his life to save her. And it's also interesting, the point you just made, Devin, about how when he does read this letter, that it, everybody could have like this sense of guilt mm-hmm. about it, about like the things that he's wishing on their behalf almost because there's also kind of like as a parent i could well i'm not a parent but like you know in their shoes i can imagine that that guilt of like oh my god the the things that are so wrong with this family that we all have regrets about it's being projected on the youngest member of our family and he's recognizing this yeah yeah and it's like oh wow they're carrying our baggage now and there's kind of like that guilt that comes with that I love that. It's the things you don't talk about that everybody knows, and you're able to delude yourself into thinking that no one knows it, even though they do. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, the final question I have, and I feel like we answered this, but are these movies cynical or optimistic? I think they're cynical. (laughs) 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 Which is kind of like, I like my horror like that, though, so that's that's okay. (laughs) Dead End is really cynical. I... I think Krampus is optimistic with reservations. Mm-hmm. That's probably the correct answer, yeah. <laughs> even, even the nice ending of the movie, the one that Doherty intended, is still cynical in that they are trapped and they're being forced to be nice to each other, but it's optimistic in that they do care about each other. You said cynical uh, with a with a splash of optimist? Mistake. Optimist with a splash of cynicism. Ah, I see. I, I, I think, think it, the other I, way. Yeah, other way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like it, it is the characters do grow and evolve and change throughout Krampus is the big thing for me that they do wind up all fighting to save each other. It ends with the big self-sacrifice. The cynicism of that Krampus doesn't really care that much, but he still does give them that extra chance. I'm going to burp. Hold on. <clears throat> OK, um, leaving that in. <laughs> whereas, what was the point I left off on? Dead end. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I got so thrown by my burp. Dead End doesn't give them those arcs that most of Dead End, like if you look at it from Frank's arc, then he is building up to what seems to be a redemption. He is starting to bond with his daughter and then that's pulled away from him. Lin Shay, Laura has everything taken away from her and all of her boundaries and her ability to connect with her family just disappears. Marion isn't even given the chance to break up with Brad. She is not allowed to part with him on her own terms. It it It's saying that these tensions exist and they will continue to exist and they will not go away that you yeah. you cannot make yourselves get along what a beautiful way to close this out before we go into our last segment it just wanted to ask if there's anything else you guys want to say i know this is a very long episode so thank you for sticking with us we had <laughs> so many ideas and really wanted to expand on everything so appreciate everyone staying a little bit longer with us today uh, I think the last thing I had is a so not serious note was <laughs> with David and I's read on the ending of Krampus of them pretty much just like being damned to to, to snow globe hell. Um, I find it even more cynical or sad that Omi is trapped in this one and she's not back with her parents in their snow globe. Oh, that 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 was that's how that's how I left the movie at one a.m. last night when I finished watching this. I was like, oh, that's great. <laughs> that is a perfect place to end. And now it's time for our final part of the show, the bone review section, where we rate each movie on a scale of one to four bones with half bones in between. Starting us off for a review of Dead End is Brucker. I was, I'm so bad with ratings, but I think I'm, after discussing my ratings gone up even a little bit more, it was already high going into this, but I think I'm going to give it three and a half bones. Nice. I know that's like a high rating, but the, I, I found this movie extremely thought provoking and fun. So yeah, uh, I'm giving it three and a half bones. I'm on the same train as you. Uh, this movie is so much fun. I love it so much. I I love the approach it feels like a kid's horror film, but also with the same like Ooh. adult themes, which is really fun. I just love the creatures. The creatures, I think they shot in New Zealand and they use Peter Jackson's creature shop or whatever he has. I know creature shop is more Jim Hansony, and it shows like they, they have like this like fantastical, but dark realism to them. I love it so much. I love all the references that they have to the Christmas movies in here. Again, I saw very heavily Christmas vacation, which is my favorite Christmas film. But also like Jingle All the Way and the animation and all the the classic Christmas things in there. And I think they do it so well in a sense that like it's subtle, but also very present at the same time. The cast is super fun. Adam Scott's one-liners are <laughs> very <laughs> silly, but really great. Are we talking about Krampus or Dead, dead I'm End? I'm sorry. Are we talking about Dead End? This makes so much more sense. I was so confused during all of that. Yeah. I'm like, what? I'm sorry. <laughs> I, now I, I understand like, your guys' faces a little bit like... more. I understand your guys' faces. You know what? I'm just going. I went in my notes and Krampus was first in my notes. I want to continue <laughs> with Krampus and we'll just cut it in. Thank you for de okay, dealing with me. That's fine. I think I just totally zoned out there. Please just leave it um, in this order, though. That was amazing. Yeah, yeah no, I, was, I, was, I was like, just let her cook. Just let her go. <laughs> <laughs> you're Thank on a roll keep going adam scott me that was it basically it oh no 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 yeah i love that everything was practical i feel like well most things were practical and that was killer yeah so i'm gonna give this uh three and a half bones for for krampus damn david how about you for dead end or krampus for dead end <laughs> okay should i do my dead end review now <laughs> um I'll, i i can do my dead end <laughs> I'm right there with you, Brucker. So I, I'm so proud of Dead End, actually, because I, I feel like I, I didn't discover it, but I feel like I did. <laughs> 
10 years ago, I was like just scrolling through Netflix and I came on this movie and I'm like, that has an interesting poster. Oh, it has Ray Wise and Lin Shay and I just watched Twin Peaks and Insidious. This sounds interesting. Okay, this will probably be bad, but I'm going to watch it. It's only 85 minutes. And then I was just like, this is the best thing ever. And I love this. This little random hidden gem. And I'm so glad like now I'm starting to see like more people recognize it. Ryan Hollinger did a video that probably helped it. Um, like you're starting to see people on Reddit like being like, oh, Dead End is a good movie. I'm like, yes, people are finding this. And I, I definitely did not expect on that random night to find a movie that I would watch many, many times over the years and just keep on returning to because it is it's so much fun. But it's also like, I mean, I don't know if you guys find it scary or not. I find it kind of creepy. Well, yeah, it's it's just like the fear of being stuck on this dark road that never ends is such a real and tangible fear like we have all driven on these dark roads at night and that is the setting where it feels like anything can happen and i i, I love it so much i love watching the family tear each other apart as they fade into oblivion and it is not what it presents itself as at first and that works i also really love that it's just like a complete cold opening literally the first shot of the movie is like a close-up and they're just bickering and i'm like this this is already amazing this is perfect i am also going to give this three and a half bones devin how about you i had the opposite experience of uh. both of you to be honest i know <laughs> and it could have just been the headspace that i was in I, I will put it up to that when i watch this movie and i think talking about it today with both of you like does elevate it it in retrospect so i'll have to watch it again but yeah i did it just like, didn't work for me i think that the pacing was odd it, it moved really really fast there was so much happening that i feel like in a more simplified sense i would have really loved it because david i agree i think the setting is fantastic and i love the initial like setup is really creepy being on a road in a dark forest by yourself with your family sounds like hell there was too much happening for me to really get with it the, the beats felt repetitive it did feel a little slapsticky at some points which i wasn't totally on board with i think the the genre it was it was debating a lot between a horror comedy and and a horror with surprising comedic elements i what i did like about it a lot was that it didn't feel very modern it did feel more like a classic horror film it had a little bit more of the um 70s-esque 60s-esque style um which i do appreciate and i actually was like oh i'm surprised this was 2003 I think also for me, I mean, I mentioned it above, but the casting really took me out of it of watching a, you know, late 20 year old man playing a 15 year old. I just it was just not believable and made that character worse in 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 my mind. But there were elements that I, that I enjoyed. And I think I'm going to give it one one and a half bones. Come back to me after I see it a second time next year. Maybe we'll yeah. we'll talk differently. I, then. I will agree that Richard is my main reservation. So what do you think of Krampus, Devin? Great. I did that review. Awesome, great. Brooker, how about you? Uh Krampus, I didn't like Krampus as much as Dead End. Um, but the movie was a lot better than I thought it was going to be what I was going into it. Coming into discussion, I was thinking maybe two and a half bones. Maybe I'm still there. I'm like borderline because I you two have pointed out things that I missed that I do that does give it a higher rating. So maybe I'm gonna say like three bones uh for, for Krampus. Um it is like a pretty good like horror action movie and like the the monsters are freaking scary i mean like the, the, that that jack in the box thing is terrifying and so is that angel 
fucking thing that flies Ugh! and why does everything have to have gross tongues in this anyways um <laughs> i i would love to see this to be adapted into a survival horror video game where you play all these characters mm. and you have to just like fend off all the monsters bunkered in this house and every, like if you play as uncle howard you have you get the shotgun play as adam scott you get the revolver if you play as the ant you get the ice pick so <laughs> i mean i i would love to see this as a horror survivor video game for sure That's but yeah cool. um i'm at I, I think i'm at three three bones for this cool um i'm closer to you on that brooker i'm not a fan of this movie there are things i like about it i really really love the animation scene and honestly i kind of think that was a more interesting movie i kind of want to see the movie that is omi in 1946 dealing with krampus i think that is so much more interesting and such a better idea than what we actually got uh which is I mean, we, I said it was optimistic in my analysis, but in my review, I'm just going to call it tame. I think it's a really tame movie. Like, yes, it has the balls to kill the sister first, but also that might have been a mistake because I think that relationship was a lot more interesting than the ones that we're dealing with throughout the movie. Like, I don't really care about his relationship with his extended family, and there's just too many characters for me to really know any of them well none of them feel that flushed out so i'm going to give it two bones which is mostly for the animation sequence well damn okay we'll just have all opposite thoughts today then (laughs) okay yes indeed that's fine (laughs) that happens i would definitely play that video game now i really want it so would i (laughs) yeah (laughs) i would play that well thank you so much for coming on today it was such a joy having you thank you for like going really deep with us again sorry for the long episode but we just always have so much fun talking with you. Oh, no. Thank you again for having me. And I love long episodes. Are you kidding? That's why I have a podcast, because I can just keep going <laughs> on stuff like this. So, no, this is totally fun. Um, and uh, just to, I guess, like plug myself a little bit, uh, both of you have been on my show. Uh, if people want to hear their takes on movies that may or may not have been covered on Cadaver Dogs by this point. But uh, Devin and I talked about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. That was a lot of fun. And uh, David and I talked about Slumber Party Massacre 2, <laughs> the sequel to that gem. But yeah, and that one is just something uh, otherworldly. And also there's a really fun interview episode I have with you two coming out as well, if people want to listen to that. so um, Yeah, and again, that podcast is autopsy of a horror movie i'm gonna recommend david's episode because i'm not in it but i love it so much so definitely check out (laughs) that one and i'm gonna recommend devin's episode because it is awesome and fascinating and i love how much depth you guys went in with texas chainsaw and brought up a lot of angles that i had never considered and it was cool i'm gonna recommend both You talked about Weatherface as the matriarch of the family, and I thought that was so cool. (laughs) It's a fun one. And of course, check out all the other episodes, because like we said, you do so many different kinds. Um, Can you give us uh, your socials one more time, where to find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, threads, TikTok, at Brucker Horror. Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on today. And that's it, folks. That is our Christmas special. I should say holiday special, <laughs> but these were Christmas movies. Hey, this is Christmas. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> these were Christmas movies. Yeah. <laughs> Not so much holiday. Uh, yeah. And enjoy your loved ones this uh, holiday season. Don't kill each other. Take the interstate. Yes. Do not take a shortcut. Don't take the shortcut. It's not a good idea. And if you're tired, let someone else drive. 
Yes, yes, absolutely. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. And also metaphorically, don't fall asleep at the wheel at your faith to live, spirit to live. <laughs> Keep going. Yes, because if you do, then Krampus will come and get you and drag you into the underworld. With the lady in white. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we did it all now. I think we got it. <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks and be much. grateful you're not in austria in 1946 yeah <laughs> god because of those petty nazis yeah <laughs> god damn nazis <laughs> all right thank all right. you much peace but ma there really is a cheese called dick cheese 